0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word as you're able. My name is Marla. I'm a partner here at Mercy View and I will be reading tonight from Romans 12 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me echo Elizabeth's greeting. My name is John Floyd. I'm glad that you're here tonight. I hope that uh, each and everything, each and every moment as well of your time here is profitable for you. I hope it's encouragement in everything uh, that we do. I'm just grateful for the band. And uh, everybody who was standing up here just a second ago, as well as the guys in the back working at the sound table, every week they labor throughout the week to lead us in worship. And I'm just grateful for that. I appreciate their service in in every way. Proverbs reminds us that uh, no one should be wise in their own eyes. And so with that in mind, before I proceed, let's pray. father we know that this this walk is a long walk and father we're we're mindful of what what you wanted us to see and want us to see every day even now from from proverbs and the the remainder of the wisdom literature of scripture that wisdom is a friend of ours and we should deepen that friendship at every turn Uh, father you promised to us in proverbs 4 12 and 13 when you walk your steps will not be hampered if you run you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Father, we know that wisdom and humility are a pair. Help me this afternoon and help my friends here as well, that we would hear from you and listen well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to share with you, as we start out tonight, one of my dad's axioms. Uh, These were various phrases that if you grew up in my household, myself and all my siblings, we heard over and over again. I think we even have a picture. Let's see here. Yep, there they are, my parents right there, my dad. That's from the early 70s. Just shows you how old I am. But... uh, My dad was a really unique guy. He lived to be 82 years of age. Um, The last 50 years of his life he spent uh, married to my mom. When he was ready to go to high school in ninth grade, he was sent out of state to a four year military academy. And it was a cavalry school. In other words, every kid that went to that school learned how to train and ride and care for horses. Back then, horses were important for for warfare preparation. So there were these schools where, where young men learned how to do these things. He dropped out of college at 19, and he entered flight school in Dallas because he knew that the United States was about to enter into World War II. And he also knew that if he knew how to fly, he could enter the service as an officer. And so that's what he did. So during the war, his job was to fly cargo planes from India to Burma to China and back. And uh, it, was, um, it was interesting to hear the stories from the war, that's for sure. Um, after he got back from the war, he became a full-time professional cowboy. And he ranched uh, from Montana all the way down to Southern Arizona, uh, among other things. Uh, after that, he went to work for a large ad agency in Detroit And at 50, he surrendered his career, packed up his family, and we all moved to Oklahoma to start a quarter horse business from scratch. My dad was adventuresome, if nothing else, that's for sure. He had a keen insight on life and human behavior, and one of the axioms that he mentioned over and over to me was this. It's often the most straightforward concepts in life that people struggle the most to understand and apply. And I'm going to say it again. It is often the most straightforward concepts in life that people struggle the most to understand and apply. And today's passage seems simple and straightforward. It's just 26 words, four sentences. The passage contains two one another's. We have a large group of one another's in the New Testament. And the passage reads like wisdom literature, like it could come out of Proverbs The words are direct and forceful, and those kind of words definitely help me. I like that. It's a a passage addressing life inside of the church. So we are uh, the audience. And it really, the passage is all about the heart posture of one believer to another. So keep that in mind as we press on forward. So one of the hazards when we come into this kind of a passage is to speed past it to go too fast, um, to think of it with familiarity, and as we know, familiarity can breed contempt. We never want that to happen for truths that we've, we've run across before, so we wanna slow down. One of my favorite authors has a quote about how important simplicity is in wisdom, and it's a slide as well, I'm gonna read it for us. This is David Pollison, he just recently passed away, but the quote is this, human beings do well with simple. We do poorly with complicated. We do poorly with simplistic. True wisdom has the delightful simplicity. Foolishness either overcomplicates or oversimplifies. How do we understand the relationship between the simple and complex without becoming simplistic or reductionistic? How do we understand the relationship between simple and complex without getting lost in the endless complications, permutations, and variations. Help me, Lord, to not get lost in those things. Another thing from Brad's message last week, we want to tap back into this undercurrent of humility that runs all the way through this passage and all the way through Romans 12 for sure. And it's important, there's this thread. Now in Romans twelve three last week, Brad, the, the challenge was that we're supposed to see ourselves with sober judgment, to see ourselves as we rightly are. But that same theme of humility actually works its way, kind of like a thread through a tapestry all the way through the passage. So we're gonna look at the four sentences that make up Romans twelve nine and 10. They're very brief. Here we go, first one, let love be genuine. And when we read, let love be genuine, the first thing that we should infer from that is that there might be some less than genuine forms of love out there. Imposters, you say, faux love, conditional love, self-love, manipulation that wears the thin veil of love. There there even is a love that holds itself out at that, but, but actually it's just concealing hate. All claims of love are not created equal. So we have to be on our guard. And the culture is of absolutely no help at all with this one. I mean, think about it, the word love has been so twisted, so misused, so co-opted that we need help. So what we'll do is we'll use scripture to help us understand scripture. And that way we can stay out of the, the morass of the culture on this particular topic. Now, and I'm also only going to mention one of the primary imposters just because of time. And it actually comes from 2 Timothy 3. We get an idea there. We read in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, people will be what? They will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Think about that, self-love. So there is this way in which love of self can take the rightful place of loving God in our hearts it would be easy to fall into that trap have you ever had a friend that made you feel used they seemed to love you but over time it became clear that they loved you for what you could give them or provide to them you likely know what it is that i'm speaking about dating relationships can be rocked and even ruined By this kind of self-love one person can now tell another person they love them because the the way the other person makes them feel and that love seems wonderful until it's not so self-love pretends to, uh, to love another for what they can get out of it and how it makes the person feel so it could be we could love someone for upward mobility for physical companionship for just a self-gratifying relationship or friendship. Maybe we're seeking a specific kind of emotional connection, an antidote for loneliness. Um, there are some good things that we could be see- seeking that also can be twisted around a little bit. Maybe we're after spiritual stimulation. In the end though, we know that many things on this list, they're not all bad, some are somewhat desirable. But any combination of these forms of self-love can masquerade as genuine love, one for another. And this is where things get a little murky. Author John Bloom puts it like this, and I think this helps us. Our greatest stories, songs, poems, even our greeting cards, all bear witness that we know there is something transcendent and ultimate about love. We can't help but ascribe mystical, even metaphysical qualities to it. Yet with all the words we devote to it, we find love simply cannot be contained in human language. Like beauty or glory, it's easier to point to love rather than define it. Love is a simple concept, right? As I see a wry smile come over my father's face. It's easy for one person to profess their love for another. But the Apostle John reminds us that professions of love and actions must actually be in alignment. And this is one of the greatest tests of love's genuineness. So it's 1 John three eighteen. little children, let us love not in word and talk, but in deed and truth. So it's not just what someone says, it's what someone does in regard to what they might say first Corinthians 13 is a passage that almost everyone is familiar with but it can actually help us here because we get to see and some of the hallmarks of what genuine love looks like what it does and what it doesn't do which actually might be more important to see but the most vivid picture of love comes one chapter later 1 John chapter 4, there's some of the verses that Elizabeth read in The Assurance of Pardon. And it's kind of a long passage, so it's going to come up on the screen. And I'm going to grab this Bible here. 1 John 4, this is where where we're going to be anchored to try to answer this question of what does genuine love look like. Here we go, verse 7, Beloved but he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we want to come back to that passage from time to time if we step back out into the culture or we get confused about what this love actually is. We know, we've been around the church house for a while, that, that in Greek there are four primary words for our word love. We'll mention those in a minute. But the First John 4 passage helps us with the sacrificial nature of the love that we see from God represented in the work of Jesus Christ. This is cruciform love, love in the shape of a cross in the couples mentoring here at Mercy View we use this definition in in, to try to help people understand what this love is love is will is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving and only genuine love can help us do the other things that are ahead in this passage that we want to do. In other words, we want to remember that this authentic love is the fuel to walk out any of the other virtues that we're gonna talk about tonight. So our second phrase, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor is not a word that we use very much. It means to regard with disgust and hatred. Hatred is a word we do know. Um, This word, abhor, or hate, should be reserved only for the things that are worthy of that kind of word. And abhor comes from a Latin word that means to shrink back in horror, to be horrified. And it's the strongest way in English to express hatred, even stronger than a word like loathe so the problem is that we often use hate the word hate like this i hate this traffic or i hate the long lines at the grocery store or i hate the the robo calls on my cell phone most of the daily use of a word like hate it's just code right it's just code for our self-love and our dislike for being inconvenienced or delayed in almost any way that's the way I use it when I say hate so this is a struggle for me so we're called to hate what is evil so that begs the question what is evil and then again I have to ask how much time do I have not very much so we're gonna come at the question of what is evil in two pretty pretty quick ways one we're gonna ask C.S. Lewis and and so. C.S. Lewis wrote about evil in the timeless classic Mere Christianity and the chapter uh, where this this phrase comes up is chapter 6 in the in the third section and it's the same source that Brad mentioned last week it's a, it's an utter classic i hope it's on your bookshelf i hope that you've read it if not it could you, you you should it's a good book to read but here's what he said about evil and i think we have a slide for this yep there we go uh We're actually, we may be behind that. We may be one slide back. Um, But this is what he said. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil... Is pride think about that you think Lewis is off the mark well he asked his audience he said think it through unchastity anger greed drunkenness and all that he said are mere flea bites in comparison it was through pride that the devil became the devil pride leads to every other vice it is the complete anti-god state of mind so Lewis is telling us that there is an element of pride in all sin. That certainly is an evil. Now, every day I know that I need the discernment that we saw and talked about in Romans twelve, two. We need our minds to be renewed for many reasons, but one of the reasons that we need a renewed mind is that the ability to discern between what is good and what is evil. I mean How are we ever gonna know what to love or to hate if we don't know the difference between good and evil? So scripture helps us again. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 2 says this, my people have committed two evils. So here we go. First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. So what is evil according to Jeremiah 2? it's preferring broken cisterns to God. That's what evil is, preferring anything to God because anything measured against God is a broken cistern. Cistern, God is the fountain of living water. The essence of evil is wanting, preferring, desiring something that, God would, that would cause God to look less than supremely valuable you recognize that the John Piper theme there this, this, it's it's there that's from desiring god and it requires it requires enormous pride to receive an invitation to draw near to god and then bask in the unending fountain of grace and joy then to say no thanks i'm going to look elsewhere for security for salvation for satisfaction so It's easy for us to see that we should hate genocide, war, global pandemics and such. But if you wanna think about where hate might most productively be focused, I'll give you two thoughts. You're in a good spot when you focus your hate on your own sin, not the sin of your friends, not sin of people you don't know, your own sin. We are in good company when we declare war and hatred on our own sin. It's important. Romans 8 talks a lot about that, as we know. And secondly, you're in good company when you hate anything that harms, diminishes, degrades, or marginalized, uh, marginalizes another image bearer every human ever born was made in God's image that person every last one has inherent value we can begin to trundle down the road to real evil when we forget the value of every image bearer there's where hate to me is appropriate and I can leave it right there for now So the second portion of the verse tells us to hold fast to what is good. What is good? That's easy. That's easy. And this list that I made, it makes me smile. I hope it makes you smile too. God referred to his creation as good. Unity among believers in the church house is good and pleasant. According to Psalm 133, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. The gospel is called the good news you know the story of the good samaritan servants are often called good and faithful that's what we want to be right good and faithful the bible talks a lot about good fruit good works good gifts good treasure good seed and even good people so we want to cling to that or hold fast And what do we make of the exhortation to hold fast? Well, we infer things right away, right? That means that there will be struggle. There will be buffeting winds. There will be storms that come. Hold fast means what? This won't be easy. And better not try this hold fast thing by yourself. Better to do it with other like-minded believers small groups gather together hold fast with committed Christ followers cling to or bond to whatever is good hold on tight one commentator said it's kind of like the bond between two pieces of wood that you glue together and then let dry that's what we need to think to or think of when we say hold fast endurance will be required in the race we know that okay our third phrase love one another with brotherly affection now this is the second mention in such a short passage but it sort of presupposes that this love would be genuine as well and what it does though it looks real specifically at the how aspect of love in other words how would love like this walk itself out well with brotherly affection. And we've got a slide for this one. This was the one, Will, that you had up earlier. The C.S. Lewis book, The Four Loves. He says there's four basic kinds of love. You've heard this before probably. You know, agape, fila, eros, and storge, right? That's the fourth kind. But I want you to look at the bottom, this, this second phrase there. The word in Romans 12, 10 is a form of the last word, storge, to be specific, it is, this is hard to pronounce, there's four syllables, uh, phylos, storgas, tender affection, specific, tender, especially towards precious family members, but the key new element here for us in this is affectionateness. So the word that we have here is actually bringing two of the Greek words for love together and making a new word. So this is new. And for me, I was thinking about, well, how do you practice this kind of affectionateness? That's a word. I mean, it has to be in word and deed because it's motivated by love, and there has to be an action component to it because think about it. Unexpressed or unacted upon feelings of affection won't do anything, right? The compliment is only a compliment when you speak it, when you say it out loud. So affection would be practiced with encouraging words, expressions of thankfulness, maybe overlooking an offense, Uh, something that I would, I deeply desire to get better at, gracious listening, listening well to others, believing the best about other people, never gossiping about them, showing hospitality, serving one another, for that matter, practicing any of the one another's would be an opportunity to do that. The heart of this showing affection, this brotherly love, really Demonstrated by Christ on the cross, but described best in Philippians 2, when we're told to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Or the ESV says, more significant than yourself. That's the heart of this affection, honoring one another. So fourth phrase, outdo one another in showing this Honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the motion picture world has Oscars. The music industry has the Grammys. Uh, we're a sports-crazed culture. Sports fans have halls of fame. What does it look like to honor people inside the local church? Well, I don't think that the culture can help us there either. And then there's this phrase, and and I stopped on this one, we're called to outdo one another. Now think about that. That seems so odd to me. The Bible consistently moves us away from any notion of competing with each other or comparing ourselves to others. Boasting about ourselves is strictly off limits, and we're all better for it, I, I know for sure so how do we handle this call to outdo what does paul mean well when we talked about second corinthians eight several weeks ago there's this idea that we're called to excel at certain things in other words to be good at something to maybe be better at it tomorrow than i am today and we would do that how we would do that through practice Right? So there are some things here that we might want to practice, but this verse says outdo, and it's the only place in scripture that I know that it says it. Outdo others in showing honor. So I want to give just a couple of examples. I think if you were, and, and we have people at Mercy View that do this quite well right now. They commend others for their faith, their patience, their acts of generous love or gracious hospitality uh, when you encourage others when you see signs of, of growth and change even the small bits of new fruit in someone's life when we express direct words of thankfulness for a simple act of kindness a sacrifice a thoughtfulness when we let others know that we that they have made a difference in our lives these are all ways to honor other people because you know what we're either going to show honor to other people or we're going to seek it for ourselves i, I kind of think it's one or the other this is that lovely byproduct uh, uh, if we actually practice this virtue it further grounds us in humility think about it the niv when it shows that last phrase it says Honor one another above yourself, or rather than yourself. And if we're busy considering ways to honor others above ourselves, we will be like the person that Tim Keller was talking about last week, and Brad mentioned that as well. We won't be thinking less of ourselves. Nope, we won't be doing that at all. We will be thinking of ourselves less, because our eyes will be on those around us who are living lives worthy of that honor. It's a blessed fruit of self-forgetfulness. I hope that's desirable sounding to you, because it is to me. The blessed fruit of just self-forgetfulness. So, to really put this into practice, I could list a lot of people who are very generous with their honor shown to other people. But I'm only going to mention one. The person I'm thinking about has always reminded reminded us to allow an honor time for nearly any men's event that we've had here at the church over the years. During these honor times, the floor is opened and one person can command another person present in any way that he feels appropriate. Guys are then heard looking across the room at someone else and telling them in front of others what they have seen or experienced in that person's life, or ministry that has challenged them or blessed them or encouraged them. So have you ever seen this happen in person? These honor times can be quite powerful. I know of a few things that can be more attractive and more effective that spring one another on to love and good deeds. These honor times are, are wonderful. Now for this person, the one I'm speaking of, his, this honoring of others is something that I've heard him do over and over again. He will often compliment people for the work, the care, the sacrifice that they make here in the church, the service to other people. I've seen him do it in small groups of folks. I've even seen him do it when people are not around. In other words, he will he will talk about someone favorably, show them honor to someone else, even when they're not present. This guy is the first to encourage and commend, and the very last one to ever critique. He is gracious and understanding of the struggles that others face because he sees himself as a fellow struggler. Paul had this sort of a conversation in Philippians 2. He was talking about Timothy, and he hoped to send Timothy to the the folks in Philippi. And he said this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that i may be cheered by the news of you for i have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare so paul is commending timothy to the people at philippi and honoring him at the same time the person that i'm talking about is brad andrews your pastor Brad and I have spent time together over the last, I think it's 12 years, and I just want you to know that I know of no one who cares any more for your spiritual health and well being than he does. His example is proven. He's amazingly consistent in his commitment and his care for this local church and anyone who passes through those doors. And I want to tell you that in the future, there would be no better way to practice this honoring. And the type that Paul is talking about. than maybe sending Brad or Holly or even the kids. A quick text message. A handwritten note. An email. A compliment before or after a service. A phone call anything at all to express your love care concern and honor for them because I I know that it will make a difference in their day-to-day work ministry life everything that they do now honor and affection one to another was never meant to be some sort of isolated circumstance in the local church or occasional occurrence no it was made to be the thing that we would do literally we would practice every time we get together so that's a high bar I know that it is so if you look in the ESV this passage in Romans 12 has a heading and we're going to conclude with this it says marks of a true Christian so I want you to know that any time that we read a passage like this or I do and certainly any time that I'm sitting where I'm sitting right now that my outlook on the passage like this is it is aspirational. (laughs) I mean, I would be absolutely thrilled if all of my actions were motivated by this kind of genuine gospel-fueled cruciform love. But so often my motives are compromised. I struggle to love I struggle to love in that advanced level that we see in Scripture about you don't get any credit for just loving people that love you. Try loving your enemies and those that actively oppose you. That's where things get difficult. Hard for me to love people that don't love me back sometimes. I have missed far too many opportunities to... Honor one another with brotherly affection. My pride is alive and well, and it needs to be hated by me and killed through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, the gospel saves the day, saves me, and saves the day both days. The day that I get it right and the day that I get it all wrong. The truth is, I never had nor will have the ability inside of myself to walk these truths out. The ability to love with a cruciform love comes from someplace else. We know that it does. Same passage, 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. So if we get it right, I know that it's only because of the good works of the gospel and the fruit that the gospel produces in our lives. And when we get it wrong, the gospel reminds us that as my sin increases, so does grace. Grace. And grace always gets the last word. Though my sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And that's what allows us to look at passages like this and not just be overwhelmed and not be just daunted by the difficulty to do this well and to do it consistently. We're in good company when we pray prayers like, God, help me. And that's what we can pray at those moments. Glory to God for his provision to me and to you on both the good day and the bad day. Let's pray.